Hello and welcome to this podcast from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and I'm delighted to say that my guest on the programme today is Robert McFarlane, one of the most distinguished of contemporary British nature writers, and the author most recently of The Old Ways, subtitled A Journey on Foot. McFarlane has, in fact, been journeying for well over a decade. It was in 2003 that the first fruits of his engagement with the natural world appeared. Mountains of the Mind was a history of humanity's fascination with mountains and demonstrated what would become McFarlane's trademark mix of natural history, literary and cultural history, and personal experience. That book's rapturous welcome was followed four years later by the equally acclaimed The Wild Places, a travelogue exploring the histories and landscapes of the wild in Britain and Ireland. And now comes the third volume in what Macfarlane has called a loose trilogy about landscape and the human heart, an account of some of the most memorable of the seven or eight thousand miles of footpaths he has followed in his lifetime, and the reflections they have given rise to in him and a host of other writers, venturers and restless souls. Adam Nicholson, writing in The Telegraph, called the book magnificent and went on, This is not a book about the history of pedestrianism nor the outward band movement, but something consciously set much higher than that, a sequence of sixteen long meditations on the place of walking in human consciousness, each set in a different, sparklingly realised stretch of the world. I spoke to Robert recently, before an event at Bristol Grammar School, and began by asking him why Britain seemed especially rich in paths. Did it come down to the antiquity and density of human habitation in these islands? I think there are two reasons. One is the one you give, um, that these islands have been in, throughout most of their area uh, continuously inhabited for up to 5,000 years longer. And the second is that we, England and Wales at least, have an extraordinary footpath system, which emerged paradoxically as a function of the Enclosures Acts, and which, as it were, formalised the existence of these rights of way and made them visible on maps. And actually there is a third reason, and that is a long, long history of walking. And walking not just for function, but for pleasure as well. So Chaucer gives us a, a, a 14th century use of, of the idea of, of walking for leisure. Gives us a very early use of that. So it goes back at least as, as, as far as that. So for centuries people have walked for uh, reasons other than duty. But your book is a useful reminder that, that walking for centuries, for millennia, was really the, the means by which we discovered things about our world. But we went beyond our, our tight-knit community and went into the world and discovered things about ourselves and, and elsewhere. Yeah, well, I'm very, I'm very interested in how paths relate in, in, in all senses of that verb, how they join places to places, but also people to people, but also thoughts to thoughts. And um, one doesn't need to walk, as it were, recreationally to think. Um, Ronald Blythe says somewhere that you know, there's, a, there's a shadow history of, of, of British literature, which is about sweat and blisters and dust and roadsides. Uh, and, and that we have so much thinking has been done through and while walking. Yeah, you, you quote many examples of that in of that in your book from from Rousseau, who is perhaps one of the, the prime candidates, Charles Darwin, Edward Thomas. I mean, there's there's a whole history of sort of parallel history of, of literature to be written about the peripatetic approach, isn't there? Yes, it's extraordinary, and it goes across um, countries, and it, although it's particularly strong in the in the as it were the English literary tradition, but but of course you know. One doesn't always think while walking, and uh, I walked some very long distances for this book, and, and discovered that you know after twenty miles you're 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 blank, blank brained, and uh, and and all you can think about is the creak in your hips. 
Yeah, I like I like the phrase you quoted from from a writer, skull cinema, the sort of sense that kicks in after those 20 miles. I mean, what, so what, what is it actually like? I, I've never walked 20 miles at a stretch, I have to confess. <laughs> well, the, the, the skull cinema is this idea that you get, you get one, one celluloid playing on a uh, loop playing in rotation, as it were, and you, and you just, the same images recur, the same words, and these, I mean, it's a very rhythmic activity. The footstep, uh, along with the heartbeat and the breath, these are the three great um, body rhythms. But after a while, that rhythm can become both self-propelling and self-repeating and so you do end up astonishingly bored but the, 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 you kind of there is this weird state the other side of that without wishing to sound too sports psychology zenish about it where you, you your mind does begin to work in ways slightly dissociated from your body but brought about through that that rhythm of walking I mean the f- furthest I've ever walked is about 40 miles in a day and I ended it absolutely shattered but also kind of brimful of thoughts and that that became one of the chapters in the book about walking to my grandfather's funeral and how do you record your walks robert as you go i mean are you taking copious notes intermittent notes photographing committing things to memory a combination of all these a combination of all these things i i have a terrible memory for language i'm a an English literature teacher who can barely remember a line of verse, but I, I have a, I do remember paths and and walks very well, and I think that mnemonic property of walking is something that interests me a great deal as well. But I have quite a, a visual uh, memory as well, so I, I can recall sights and details with reasonable ease. But I'm also, you know, kind of jotting things down every now and then. And um, what I'm not doing is sort of walking along and stumbling over boulders because I have my nose in my notebook um, but but sometimes are you retaining a sense impression and it's only later when you get back to your study that you you find a way to capture and something that, that you describe the powdery consistency of some a dusty road as, as being like rouge powder and that just that just brought it all exactly exactly the texture of it to mind but i wondered is that the kind of thing that you sometimes happen upon when you're out or is it just laid down and you later find the way to describe it in language um, it's a it's a lovely question, and in in that case, in that case, I I literally walked upon it. I mean, I stum- I stumbled upon it. I was walking barefoot on the uh, on the Black Mountains, uh, which are old red sandstone, and it it comminutes to this utterly beautiful fine grade of of red dust. And it was actually the redness of the dust that suggested the rouge powder, but it did feel, as I say, like treading in a makeup box for miles. Um, but uh, but other times, I'll have come back exactly with a particularly with weather, which is such a, a sort of hazy and erratic uh, phenomenon, I'll have come back with a, with a sense impression, as you put it, and then we'll sometimes spend months trying to kind of get the sentence that catches, or in some, sense, in some case fails to catch, at that phenomenon. And you've got different palettes, I suppose, to, to draw upon, haven't you? You've got languages of science and geology as a sort of literal bedrock on which you're treading, and then you've got languages of, of natural history, and you've got the, the, the folk language, and you've got Gaelic when you're in, when you're in Scotland. So you have, you have a vast range from which to draw on, which I suppose can be both an opportunity and a, a challenge. Well, I relish specialist languages um, because uh, I'm not a specialist except in terms of literary history, um, and I, I I love the uh, the dialects that spring up as a consequence of expertise. And whether that is a, a a geologist who needs a you know a particular language for a particular kind of settlement rate and its consequences for the texture of a kind of rock, or whether it's um, a, a, a Gallic word born of uh, peat cutting and all its intricacies. And so I love these vocabularies that, that proliferate in order to accomplish very particular tasks. And, and they, they have a precision and a lyricism that I desire. 
what goes into preparing for a walk? Do you do a lot of, of research, uh, again, from the geology up and the, the literary antecedents, or does some of that happen afterwards more reflectively? Before and after, and the, the, the key, I mean, I think T.S. Eliot once talks, talks about the blue pencil behind the ear. I mean, he's talking about the editorial blue pencil, but sometimes it can be hard to feel that you're not walking with a pencil behind your ear. But it's, it, you know, it's crucial, as it were, because walking is about surprise and about discovery and about astonishment, as I want to write about it. And it's about immediacy as well as memory. Um, it's crucial to keep some, some part of yourself ready to be amazed or, uh, you know, uh, dismayed by what you find. It's partly also, though, about attending to the ghosts, isn't it? It's trying to, to find those frequencies on which they may still be um, transmitting. Well, um, I, yes. I mean, I don't, I don't want to sound too table-wrapping and occultish, um, but I, I, the, the book is very interested in how landscapes record and fail to record the past. And there is a, there's a long, fascinating as a tradition of, of haunting and spectrality to do with these old paths, this idea that landmarks which are made by repeated human contact have something invested in them and in in as it were the most mystical version of that idea which is itself in its basic form irrefutable comes this idea that we hear ancient voices when we walk ancient paths so edward thomas and john macefield and particularly as i say at the beginning of the book after the first world war when people were you know it was a time of a great rise of occults and spiritualism and people wanted to hear from the dead and these old ways provided means of retreating both in terms of getting away from the present and actually stepping back towards the past so the book the book is has many many ghosts that walk within it though it's also filled i hope with you know with the living and the and the, and the vividly living absolutely yes we maybe talk about some of those characters in a moment i wanted to ask though why edward thomas in particular speaks to you as a as an antecedent walker well, uh, I came to think, ev- even as he kept a distance from me, as I tried to walk my way back into acquaintance with him, I came to find more p- proximity with him. He was a man who wanted nature desperately to cure him of his despondency. I'm not despondent, but I do expect a great deal from nature. He was a man who often found that nature failed to answer his calls. Um, and I'm fascinated by indifference as, as well as by intimacy in relations with place. Um, he was a walker, he was a family man, he um, was a, a, a prose writer who's, who really had poetry embedded in the strata of his language. And while I will never write poetry, I, I, I abandon poetry, terrible poetry, in order to write prose and um, have always worked at levels of rhythm and, and, and image, tried to. And so, you know, stylistically, domestically, and as it were, metaphysically, I see all sorts of relations there. But I wouldn't claim parity with Thomas, but, but yeah, I recognise aspects of myself in him. And I suppose I, I, I learned this from reading Matthew Hollis's recent biography of the last years of Edward Thomas. You, almost, you can see that the poetry sort of poking up through the prose, can't you? You can see it becoming rhythmical in certain ways and certain phrases sort of crystallising. And I guess, I guess that's also quite in keeping with the way that you approach prose writing? Well, um, Vladimir Nabokov says something about, you know, every prose writer should have an ear for rhythm. Um, and I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I read my sentences back out to myself and regardless of the embarrassment that quite often causes. And, um, and, and partly because I think that places have rhythms. And as I said earlier, walking is a rhythmic activity and different landscapes, as it were, bring up different rhythms in the feet and in the body. And there was one point in the book where I thought I would write the entire book with each chapter being covertly 
driven by a single kind of rhythm in response to the rhythms of that particular landscape because the, the book's organised by substances, silt and granite and gneiss and limestone and so forth. So this idea of mind-altering substances but also of the world as possessing rhythms that kind of move up through our bodies without us knowing and, and uh, help us think, really. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, phenomenology would be the, the philosophical backdrop to all this. Now, on a more... Um corporeal note mm. perhaps but also talking about moving up through the body you sometimes take off your walking boots and you say it's not necessarily better but it is different tell, tell me about in what, the way in which it's different uh, this barefoot walking mm. well um, I, yes certainly one doesn't turn into a saint the moment one slips off one's boots but uh, I, there is a f- our, our feet are our connection with the world they're the only bit of us which is permanent, pretty much permanently in connection with the world and yet we for very good reasons we clothe them, we shod them, and um, there's a wonderful, lovely feeling, freedom of taking off your boots and your socks, as anyone who's been to the beach will know, but you can do it in lots of other places, and I, I found I could kind of, as it were, taste the landscape using my feet, different textures, the smoothness of water-worn limestone, or the kind of silverness of bladed grass, or or the roughness of gritstone and, and granite, and sometimes I stepped on holly leaves and hawthorns and um, cursed my own piety but uh, sometimes I walked half days many miles barefoot over soft peat on the Lewis Moors and these were unforgettable miles Now you decided also to include seaways as, as well as on land tell me, tell me what your thinking was in, in doing that Yes, well, it's called a journey on foot, but this, the, there are two journeys where I sit on my behind um, and, are car- and I'm carried by, by, the, by these boats. Um, the, the ocean has its paths as well as the land. It's just that it doesn't keep its marks in the way that the land does. And they, these have been paths of navigation, trade, commerce, down which raiders, traders, devouts have moved for millennia, arguably longer than some of our land paths. And they are paths that are determined by um, prevailing currents, and prevailing winds, headlands, etc. And so you can trace them, and people, you know, incredible mapping work was done reconstructing the, the seaways of antiquity. So I really wanted to, to explore this other kind of old way of path. And they too have their, their stories and their mythologies attached to them. And I was very taken with the, the mythology of the blue men, which your, which your friend Ian, who's a skipper of a boat you were, you were sailing around the Outer Isles in, describes. And that brings the, the whole notion of poetry and storytelling within the story um, to life, I thought. Can you, can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, so the, the, these are the blue men of the Minch. And this story was told to me in, in a boat in the Minch, uh, an open boat, thin, large hull by a wonderful man called Ian Stephen. And the blue men are, as it were, the embodiment of the Minch themselves. They're full of tumults and they haul themselves out onto your boat as you're sailing the Minch and they stand there dripping and they say to you, um, we're going to uh, speak to you in poetry and you need to reply to us in like rhythm and rhyme and meter and if you do, we'll let you go and if you don't, we'll haul your boat to the bottom and you'll all die. So it's a kind of, it's a tough, it's a tough game but it's eloquence that gets you out of your trouble. It's a creative, literary instinct that might just save you and Ian tells this story he's a, he's a storyteller and he's, he watches how this story moves along the sea roads and the different variants and accents that it has where it makes different landfalls though obviously it comes from this one great ch- channel that separates the Outer Hebrides from the Scottish northwest mainland. And I was, I was struck by the contrast between in southern England where you've got chalk paths which are, which are discernible on the landscape 
And then in Scotland, some of these shilling paths, they're marked by cairns, mm -hmm. and they're, I suppose, in danger of being lost because they're, they're partly a matter of oral transmission of people knowing where they are and passing them on. I mean, do, do you think that's a serious risk? Mm -hmm. they, they may just you know, end up like dots on the, on the landscape, like bits of, of land art, but actually not, no longer be paths that anyone follows? I don't think it's a risk because, I mean, the paths come and paths go and the peat has surged on Lewis and grown up around the stones of Callanish and it's ebbed back again. This was one particular path that I was told of and it, it had to be canned because the, otherwise the stones really sink into the sphagnum and the peat swallows what we would call a conventional linear path. And it was a crofter's trail to bring him back from this very incredibly remote peninsula that he was crofting on. But what was amazing about it was that it was a more than functional path and that really he'd, he had no need of creating these cairns and these cairn lines so, in which the cairns were so close to one another. And you realise that there was a creativity to this act and that seemed in keeping with what I found many, many times when I was walking, that paths speak to economy but they also speak to kind of beauty and pleasure and, and other such uh, impulsions. You're clearly highly sensitive to all these all these resonances you know from the past and from the landscape and at the same time you're aware that previous walkers have perhaps been in the grip of a certain kind of romanticism and have sort of lost lost touch with reality how do you how do you sort of do you have a sort of mental barometer that uh, that keeps you in a certain zone or do you do you have a, is it a spectrum where you sometimes <laughs> It's a rather inelegant question. But. No, no, no. It's a very good. It's a very good question. And I, I mean, I, I, I undoubtedly have romantic uh, impulses, as it were. Um, but there, there is no garden, and there never was. And I, 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 I've always known that these paths were not going to lead, as it were, back to some ideal past. But I kept encountering nostalgics, of whom the most probably the most famous is Alfred Watkins, who comes up with the idea of ley lines, which have so many strange lives in the 20th century. But he had a, a utopian vision of a pre historic society organized according to free trade principles, for example. Thomas thought at times, I think, that he could walk his way back into a, into a, a consoling, simple, ghostly world. Um, it's taken me possibly two books to realize that that's, that's not possible. And, and this book is partly about the perils of, of romanticism. Um, but I hope, but I'm also, you know, beauty is a powerful grace in its landscape forms is a powerful, powerful feeling. And I, am, I, I don't want to deny the possibility of that. I'm fascinated by the goods that landscape gives us. You describe this book as the final book of a, a loose trilogy, which started, I guess, over a decade ago with, with Mountains of the Mind. Do you, do you feel a great sense of completion of having, of having traveled somewhere intellectually, psychologically, aesthetically yourself, having reached this point? I do. Um, I have no idea how, how, how those readers who've travelled with me over all three books feel, but um, a ten years, um, a thousand pages, many thousands of miles, and it's probably taken me longer than it ought to to explore these questions that interest me so much of landscape and the imagination, landscape and our emotions. But they're, they're fugitive subjects, they're hard to write about, and um, I, feel, I feel a combination of tiredness and relief to have put down this rucksack. Thank you very much indeed. I was talking to Robert McFarlane. The Old Ways is out now in hardback. You can find out more about it, as well as Robert's earlier books, and several million other titles besides, by going to blackwell.co.uk. 
There's also a podcast archive there of over 150 author interviews. Look for the podcast tab on the home page. That's all for this edition of the Blackwell Podcast, but I hope you'll join me again soon for another programme. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.